Well, once again, I know it's been said several times already, but happy Mother's Day. I'm so grateful for the second through fourth graders and primary class for sharing that beautiful song. I'm glad there was some space between when they got up and when I got up because uh, there was several tears running down my face hearing them sing that song and watching those pictures. Uh, you know, holidays like, like Mother's Day and even like Father's Day can be somewhat tricky to celebrate. As Pastor Danielle mentioned in the opening announcements, you know, for many of us, this is a time that we celebrate and remember with fondness, but for others, it might be a very painful holiday. We recognize that there are complexities in family relationships and in our world today. I read this last year, but I thought it was worth reading again as we are thanking mothers today. It's from Amy Young, a woman who uh, is not a mother herself. She longed to be, but it was not what ended up happening in her life. And she writes what she entitles the, an open letter to pastors about Mother's Day. And her advice, among other things, is to acknowledge the wide continuum of mothering. And there's a part in here where she suggests maybe this is how we give a tribute. And I want to read that part to you. She says this, to those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or something else, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make it harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, spiritual moms, we thank you and we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we are grateful for that and celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year or in past years, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who have emptier nests this upcoming year, we grieve and also rejoice with you. <laughs> and to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. And then she concludes by saying, this Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We remember you. So today we do remember and celebrate mothers, and we also do that recognizing and being sensitive to the wide and complex circumstances that surround that important role. One circumstance that 
we all have in common when it comes to mothers is that we do not get to choose at least our, who our biological mothers would be. I am so grateful for the mother that I have. I wouldn't have chosen it any differently. Happy Mother's Day, Mom, if you're watching. And I'm sure for many of us here today, we would have a similar feeling, I hope, that if I could choose any mom, mom, it would be you. I'm so thankful for you. But as we mentioned before, maybe those aren't the feelings for everybody. But the fact remains that we did not get to have a choice on who it was that got to be our mother. And we are going to open the word today and turn to a passage that tells a story of a woman, a woman with remarkable faith and courage. But she was a woman, at least in society's eyes, that would have been considered someone that you probably wouldn't choose to be your mother. We open to Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and maybe just a little background information from Joshua chapter 1 that we're not going to read today. Joshua has just been commissioned to lead God's people. Moses is no longer there, but Joshua has been commissioned to now be the new leader. God says that the promised land is theirs. It is finally ready for them to enter into and God has told Joshua that he will be with him just as he was with Moses, that he will not forsake him. And the people have promised to obey Joshua just as they obeyed Moses. I don't know if that would be reassuring to hear if you're Joshua or a little discouraging to hear, right? Because they weren't always so obedient to Moses. But all these promises have been made in chapter 1. And now we open to chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said to them, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. We'll pause there and just talk about it a little bit. Talk about how this first move that Joshua makes is to send out two spies to Jericho. And I find it strange that Joshua would do this, that he would feel a need to send out spies after God has assured him that the land will be theirs, just in the chapter before. It's interesting, too, because these spies were not commissioned by God like they were when Moses sent out the 12 spies. Joshua, it says, sends him out secretly. So is Joshua being a wise military commander here doing some recon for the coming victory, or is he showing a little failure of nerve, maybe a failure of faith in God's promise? Well, whatever the reason, Joshua sends out the two spies, and they go straight to the house of someone that you probably wouldn't choose to be your mom, the house of a prostitute. 
Now, this part of the story bothers some people. In fact, some protest that Rahab didn't participate really in such a profession or wasn't participating in it anymore. But the language in the original Hebrew doesn't leave much room for any other interpretation. In fact, even when Rahab's name is listed in Hebrews 11, commending her for her faith, this particular profession is mentioned again. Now, Scripture doesn't go into much detail about how she ended up in this line of work. Maybe she was forced into it, not her choice, or didn't have much choice. It also doesn't give many details as to how or why the spies end up in her house. Maybe, I like to think, they thought that this house would have been very strategic to their mission and their cover. On their way into the city, I'm sure they would have carefully been surveying those mighty Jericho walls, And in doing so, I assume that they would have noticed Rahab's window, that same window through which they would escape, and later that red cord would hang. And when they saw her window, they would have undoubtedly seen Rahab's face. And if they saw her face, they would have known right away what she did for a living because they used to have their face unveiled in order to advertise what it is they do. So maybe they thought, what better cover as strangers we could enter her house and no one would raise an eyebrow, and we could even get a good look at the city walls. I'm sure that what they didn't know is that they were entering the home of the only person in the city, maybe the only person in the Israelite camp who was ready to risk everything for the purpose and plan of God. Not only does she risk her life by quickly coming up with this story to throw the guards off the scent of the spies, but listen to what she says next, starting in verse 8. I just want to say thank you so much for the work you guys are doing up there. It's a little echoey. Does it sound a little echoey? I'm I'm hearing an echo. I don't know if you can take that out a little bit as, as we read. Thanks so much. It could just be me that it's bouncing back in here, but it f- feels like there's, a, there's an echo in here. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That's much better. Thank you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You would think that you were listening to an Israelite citizen as you read those words. She declares confidently, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She begins to recall some of God's past miracles and victories, and then especially the part where she says, your God is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. She is declaring the sovereignty of God. In fact, that exact phrase has not been used by anybody else in Scripture up to this point except for Moses. Pretty good company she's keeping there. And last but not least, maybe you notice in your, I don't know if it was up on the, on the screen, but in the translation in your Bible, you may have the Lord written in all capital letters. She calls God by his name, Yahweh, Jehovah. Amazing 
the kind of ways in which she's talking about God. Now, she was a Canaanite, which means she probably was pagan, polytheistic. She may have just been adding Yahweh to her other list of gods, and and no doubt she would have had a rudimentary understanding of God compared to the Israelites. But I think that makes her profession of faith even more impressive. No one else is talking about God like this except her in the story. Up to this point, I would say her actions and words seem to show she is more confident that God will deliver on his promise maybe even than Joshua. But Rahab doesn't stop there. We read in the next verse, and it's sounding much better. Thank you. Starting in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure, sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. I think we should also pause here and not underestimate how hard this would have been for Rahab to do, for her to declare her faith, to take this giant leap of faith, to put her trust of her life and her family's life in the hands of God of Israel. It's hard, number one, because she already has one strike against her socially, right, because of her profession. It marks her as a marginal figure in society, tolerated but despised. Who's to say that the Israelites would honor this agreement between someone like her? But she still steps out in faith. And of course, it's hard because harboring enemies, you presumably would face execution from the king if you found out. And it's also hard because there's no evidence other than God's reputation that Jericho would fall. As she would have looked out upon her city, she would have seen everything looking like normal. Kids playing in the streets, those walls still standing strong and tall. Yet despite how hard it must have been, she takes this giant leap of faith. I can't help but pause here, family, and just think about how this teaches us a lesson to not judge a book by its cover. How we shouldn't be so quick to doubt the faith or the abilities or what God is doing in the life of someone else or what he could do through somebody else's life based on what we see on the outside or maybe how different they are from us, how different they think from us. Or how we shouldn't let the judgments that others have made on us cause us to doubt the kinds of faith acts that we can do for God. In his book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey tells a story about Carolyn. He says this, I have a bright, talented, and funny friend in Seattle named Carolyn Martin. But Carolyn has cerebral palsy. And it is the particular tragedy of her condition that it's outward signs, drooling, floppy arm movements, inarticulate speech, and bobbing head cause people who meet her to wonder if she is mentally disabled. Actually, her mind is the one part of her that works perfectly. It is muscular control that she lacks. Everyone on campus knew Carolyn as the disabled person. They would see her sitting in a wheelchair, hunched over, painstakingly typing out notes on a device called a Canon communicator. Few felt comfortable talking with her. They could not follow her jumbled sounds, but Carolyn persevered, stretching out a two-year Associates of Arts degree program over seven years. 
Next, she enrolled in a Lutheran college to study the Bible. After two years there, she was asked to speak to her fellow students at one of their chapels. Carolyn worked many hours on her address. She, tr- she typed out her speech, uh, the final draft, at an average speed of 45 minutes a page and asked her friend, Josie, to read it for her. Josie had a strong, clear voice. On the day of the chapel service, Carolyn sat slumped in her wheelchair on the left side of the platform. At times, her arms jerked uncontrollably, her head lulled to one side so that it almost touched her shoulder, and a stream of saliva sometimes ran down her blouse. Beside her stood Jessie, who read the mature and graceful prose Carolyn had composed, centered around this text. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, but not from us. For the first time, some of those students saw Carolyn as a complete human being, saw her like they saw themselves. Before then, her mind, a very good mind, had always been inhibited by a disobedient body and difficulties with speech had masked her intelligence. But hearing her address read aloud, as they looked at her on stage, the students could see past all that and imagine a whole person. I'm so glad, aren't you, that God does not judge us the way the world judges us. That when he sees you, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that when he sees you, he sees his masterpiece, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. I think our challenge every day is to see that masterpiece ourselves to see it in others, to see it in us, to see the potential we have to do good works for the kingdom of God. So Rahab chooses to put her faith in God, does it in a mighty way. Then they make this agreement, and I won't take time to read the rest of the story. I'd encourage you to read the rest of it this afternoon. But they make this agreement that if she promises not to tell anybody about their plans, and if she hangs this scarlet cord outside their window, that they'll know when they come back and they attack that that house will be preserved, their family will be kept safe. And as you keep reading all the way up to Joshua chapter 6, you see that that's exactly what happens. The agreement is kept. Rahab's life and the lives of her family members are spared, and she lives with the Israelites the rest of her days. It is quite a thing what Rahab did, choosing God. But it's also quite a thing God did, choosing Rahab. For when you go to the New Testament, in fact, when you open just to the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and you read in the very first few verses of Matthew chapter 1, Look whose name we find there. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, 
whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and on and on it goes until you get down to Jesus. We can't pick our mothers, but Jesus could. And look who he chose. In fact, not just Rahab is a surprising choice for the Messiah's family tree. Consider the other names that we have already read. Abraham, I know he's the father of nations, a man of great faith, but he also struggled to make good choices. I think about Lot and Hagar. He was also someone who laughed in the face of God when God promised that he and his 90-year-old wife would have a baby. He lied on several occasions about his wife being his sister. Well, he's not perfect to have on there either. Jacob, Jacob made an art form out of deceit and treachery. Judah and Tamar had one of the most distasteful episodes in all of Scripture. And David, he was a ruthless killer and adulterer. You get an idea that Jesus had a few knots in his family tree? <laughs> a tree he chose himself. No matter what you have done in your life, or no matter what has been done to you in your life, it has probably been done or has happened to somebody in Jesus' family tree. And you know what this tells me? tells me that God's grace is so full and so deep and so extravagant that he is entirely comfortable with picking Rahab to be his foremother and the other characters on that list. I love these words from one of my favorite authors. I think they describe so beautifully how extravagant God's grace really is. Quote will be on the screen. Jesus sees the guilt of the past and speaks pardon. And we must not dishonor him by doubting his love. This feeling of guiltiness must be laid at the foot of the cross of Calvary. The sense of sinfulness has poisoned the springs of life and of true happiness. Now Jesus says, lay it all on me. I will take your sins. I will give you peace. Banish no longer your self-respect. I love that line. Banish no longer your self-respect, for I have bought you with the price of my own blood. You are mine. Your weakened will I will strengthen. Your remorse for sin I will remove. Then turn your grateful heart, trembling with uncertainty, to him and lay hold of the hope set before you. God accepts your broken, contrite hearts and extends to you free pardon. Amen. Now, maybe you're sitting there today. I hope not, but maybe some of you are sitting there today. Darren, that sounds great, but, but this all seems too far removed, too, too far away, too remote. God chose Rahab, great, and those other people in his family tree, but they were in the Bible not sure God would choose someone like me. Not sure his grace is extravagant enough for what I need it for. Well, in case that's what somebody is thinking here today, can I just read you one more scripture? In Galatians chapter 4, 
verse 4. I want to read it to you in the message version. It says this, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject of the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God sent his spirit uh, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Oh, there's many, many wonderful words you could focus on in that passage, but one stands out to me the most. Adopted. God has adopted you as his very own. You know, there is no such thing as an accidental adoption. You are God's chosen. Your life is not to be judged by how others see you or even how you might see yourself, but how God sees you as his precious child, an heir in his kingdom, as his masterpiece. So here we have Jesus standing with his arms holding the hands of humanity in both directions, those he chose in the past and those he chooses in the future, before his ministry on earth and after. And I hope knowing whom he chose in the past and knowing that you are his deliberate choice today will be enough for you to choose him. Lord, it is in you alone that our hope is found. We thank you for your sacrifice, for conquering sin and death, and we thank you, Lord, for choosing us to make us your own. Lord, may we leave this place living in that reality by your grace as your child, letting you work in us to do great things, great leaps of faith for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.